All right, welcome back to Lindroth Hockey Podcast. We are in partnership with the Black and Gold Hockey Productions, and today you're here with co-hosts, father and son duo, Andrew and Jim Lindroth. Dad, how are you doing today? Doing great, Andrew. Let's get into the intro. This is going to be a great uh, bunch of stories from this guy, and I think we've circled back with him. I think we contacted him, and, you know, it's just time went by, and then I recently got back, said, hey, we still love to have you, and he's like, oh, yeah, sure. And here he is. So give us the intro. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, today we're very excited to have with us Jordan Hank Henry. So he began playing competitive hockey in the WHL with Moose Jaw and Red Deer from 2003 to 2007. He later signed his first pro contract with the Florida Panthers, spending time with the ECHL affiliate and then three seasons with Rochester Americans of the AHL. Later, he moves on to the KHL and Minx, and then later two years of a lot of travel and teams that we'll later talk about. Also to note, Jordan was captain for the 2014-2015 Florida Everblades team and ended up finding his home playing with the Brampton Beast the last five, four or five years of his pro career. We're going to find out what he's doing today and heard he's coaching as well. So without further ado, hear from the man himself, uh, Jordan Hank Henry. How are you doing today, bro? I'm doing good, guys. Thanks for having me. Awesome. All right. So playing juniors in the WHL. So first I've got to ask, I've always had sort of a, a family joke an inside family joke. Whenever we talk about like a farm uh, situation up in Canada, I always always say the craziest place I heard about just by name is Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And I used to say that Moose Jaw, you actually played in Moose Jaw. What is Moose Jaw like as a, as a place? And then of course, what was it like to play some time there with uh, the team? Um, it's a smaller city, obviously, you know, in Saskatchewan there, it's, it's flat, it's harsh winters, it's, you know, but the people there love hockey, and they really, really support the Warriors a lot. And, and they do, you know, really good with that community. So that's kind of the WHL in Saskatchewan there, the, the smaller towns, you know, Saskatoon's a little bigger Regina, but then you've got your Prince Albert's here. Swift Currents or Moose Jaws, a little bit smaller centers where, you know, the people just love hockey and that's, that's as close as they get to the NHL, right? There's nothing really close to them around. So they really get out and support the the junior guys and, you know, see guys before they get there. So you're on your own billet family, you got school, you got hockey. Was it a big change for you or was it no big deal? Yeah, it's always a big change when you're young. I mean, I, you know, first time leaving home and everything like that. And, you know, new, new province, new school, like you said, everything like that. But I think the the great thing about hockey is as soon as you walk in the locker room, you just have those instant friends, right. And, and everyone's kind of bonds over the same thing. And, you know, all the guys that are older than me that were there had been through this exact situation. So you get guys that, that take you under their wing and help you along and you know you really kind of gravitate towards your time at the rink as you know I guess your your place that you're you know you know it's always you go to the rink it's always the same it's it's hockey no matter what so you know you kind of use that to um to get comfortable and then you know as time goes on the other stuff kind of falls into place yeah so kind of bringing us through your mindset when you were at that age then you know you decide to go the WHL you know the junior route what made you go through that route? How'd you get hooked up with it anyways, instead of, you know, doing the collegiate route or any other junior league? Um, tough decision. I, I got drafted by Musha late in the ninth round of the draft. And, you know, I went out when I was 16 and I was actually had a really good camp and I was, I was pretty close to making that team. So, you know, that kind of put me on the their radar, I guess. And, you know, I just, I just, 
found that it was going to be the right situation for me. I think that was, you know, my style of play was a little more rough and tumble. And, you know, that's kind of how the WHL was back then. I felt it fit, fit the way that I played and that I was going to get a good opportunity in Moose Jaw. You know, the collegiate route could have been an option, but I, I kind of, I guess, let my eligibility go before I really explored that option too much being that I was so young. So, you know, it's, it's, I mean, a path that's not necessarily for everybody, but I was fortunate enough to go back when I was 17 and made the team and got in there and got in a great, great situation with the coaching staff and everyone that was there my first couple of years. And, you know, it really helped me develop as a player. So you end up in 2017, I believe you signed a three-year entry-level contract. 2007. Deal. 2007, <laughs> not 17. 2007, you signed a three-year entry-level deal with Florida Panthers undrafted correct so how did that come about and what was that feeling like I mean now you got a chance at making the big bucks and making it pro yeah it was awesome um you know my whole life even through WHL draft like I said in the ninth round I was never really a, a blue chip prospect or you know a guy that was highly touted but you know my last couple of years after the trade to Red Deer really, really helped me. Brent Sutter gave me an awesome opportunity to to play a ton there and develop. And, you know, he really taught me about the pro lifestyle and, and being a pro off the ice and, you know, everything you need to do to, to get to that level. And, you know, through him and, and his confidence in me, my game really accelerated. And then, you know, his brother, um, Daryl was with Calgary at the time. They gave me a shot at free agent camp after my 19 year old year. So I went in there and kind of got my feet wet and, and saw that, you know, there was maybe a chance that I could compete with guys, you know, at that level turning pro. And then after my, my 20 year old year, you know, Dwayne Sutter, one of the other brothers was one of the scouts in Florida that really kind of got me in there to their development camp in the summer. And then, you know, ultimately kind of helped push for me to get a contract. I think after I had, you know, a good summer camp and then a good rookie in main camp there with the Panthers. So you start um, with the ECHL affiliate, uh, but then you move right to the Rochester uh, Americans. I believe your first year. What do you remember about your first year? Cause again, you're going from juniors. Now you're a pro big difference. I mean, now you're playing with men, grown men, supporting families must've been a big change or was it a big transition? Yeah. Cause you said red deer helps you transition, right? Yeah, it did. Yeah. I mean, well, you get outside billets, right. And then you got to kind of look after yourself and that's another, another different step for sure. Um, you know, being in Moose Jaw and even in Red Deer, my family was still fairly close to me. And then now you're, you're in Rochester and then you're in Florida and they're, you know, across the country away from you. So you don't have that to really lean on. And then, but you get the older guys, like I said, again, and, and you get the fast friends as soon as you get into the dressing room and, you know, guys that took me under their wing, older guys, and kind of showed me the ropes that was really, really helpful. And then, you know, just the fact that I I wasn't a guy that had, you know, been highly touted or a high prospect. Like I said, I was really just happy to be there and tremendously excited and and ready to work for whatever I was going to get. So that kind of helped my mindset too, because I just was focused on, you know, learning as much as I could from the coaching staff, from the other players and, you know, just trying to, to mold my game as much as I could so I could get to the next level. So within that first year, what did you immediately notice 
the staunch differences other than, you know, I know some talent gap, but really the ECHL is a lot of talent as well. What's the difference between the AHL and ECHL? I mean, really staunch differences. I mean, at that point, it was it was very, very different. I mean, in 2007, 2008, 2009, the East Coast League was still, you know, a lot of tough guys. It was a very, very hard league to play in as far as physicality and fights and everything like that. So the travel was was a lot, too, coming from Florida. At that time, we were the only team down there, so it was, you know, 10 hours or so up to South Carolina is your closest game. So it's, it's a lot of time on the bus, but, you know, I think just between that and the American league was, you know, the talent gap was, was a lot bigger then than it is now. I think, you know, the East coast league's got, I guess, ECHL it's called now, but the last, even the last five years I was in Brampton, it really took off. There's a lot more young guys there now. I mean, you see the game, it's very fast. There's a lot of talent. You know, there's a ton of guys down there that could easily play in the American League now. So, you know, I see the NHL seeing it as a place where they can, I guess, safely put some of their, I guess, second tier prospects, you would probably call them guys that are really young, that are raw, that need to develop and and they can trust now that, you know, they're going to develop down there because the league has gotten so much better. Yeah, and the WHL, I imagine, during that time, too, was a very tough league. But was there ever any moment, maybe your first year pro, was there like a fight that broke out, a big hit while you're on the ice, something that you saw where it was kind of like a, oh, wow, yeah, this is the jungle. This is what they were talking about. Yeah, my first game, actually, in Florida, we played uh, we played an exhibition game against uh, Mississippi Seawolves. I think they were in the Central League at the time, and and they had a ton, a ton of tough guys on that team for whatever reason. So. <laughs> Um, we, we had an incident with a guy that actually was a rookie the same time as me. His name was Frank McDonald. He's a Nova Scotia kid and he was a pretty tough kid in his own right. But for whatever reason, something happened. There was an incident with him and he, and he got a penalty and ended up, you know, in the box. And as the penalty is expiring, I see, you know, one of their guys changes and, and they send one of the tough guys on the ice and he skates directly across the ice and just stands in front of the penalty box, you know, with four or five seconds left in the penalty, just waiting for our guy to come out. Right. Cause this is like, he's going to, he's going to jump him right away as soon as he gets out. So the, uh, the penalty expires and the, the guy running the door sees this other guy there. So he doesn't know whether he, to open the door or keep the door closed. And he kind of opens it a crack and the guy just bursts through the door and they pile up in the penalty box and, you know, the linesmen come in and all you can see from across the bench is just arms and skates and everything flying up above the box. And I was like, well, this is a, this is a real deal now, I guess we're, uh, <laughs> we're fighting for our lives out here. <laughs> wow. Wow. So uh, I'll take the next one. So I, I do want to jump here because uh, I, I I know because I've heard you uh, on on Braden Lowe's podcast. We had Braden on last minor week. league madness, by the way. Shout minor out. Madness is a great show. Uh, and, and I don't want to make you repeat the stories, but uh, there's just so many funny things that you had with your experience with the Mints team, uh, team in the KHL. So first of all, how did that come about when you said, Hey, and, I, and I'm going to assume talking to other players we've had on, it was more of a, hey, might be a better opportunity with the KHL, more money. Uh, but you go to the KHL and boy, that's like literally going to a different world. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I'd never been to Europe before that either. So it was my first time across the pond. And 
and definitely a huge culture shock. I guess the way it came about was I, I had had a, a really solid year, my third year with Rochester and, you know, did some good things offensively. We had a good team that year. We kind of flamed out in the playoffs, but, you know, we had a really solid team, a lot of veteran guys and, and I had a good year that year and I was looking, you know, to stay with Florida and they just, they gave me a qualifying offer and it just wasn't really, you know, as good of an offer kind of as my camp thought that we should have and they just didn't really want to budge on it so we kind of we mauled that around for I guess two or three months kind of going into the off season there and you know I was in constant contact with my agent and you know talking about what our options would be and you know being a restricted free agent I didn't really have much much bargaining power with the Panthers so the Russia thing kind of came up last second he, he just called me you know close to the end of July and was like look you know, Dynamo Minsk reached out. They want you to come over. This is the offer. And, you know, obviously it was a significant amount more than I would have been making in the American League. And, you know, I had to take a few days to think about it. It didn't give me too much time. I think they gave me about a week to kind of decide whether I had to pull the trigger or not on it. So that part of it was tough because I still obviously had aspirations of playing in the NHL. And I still thought, you know, with my last year in the American League that I was, I was, inching closer to being able to to maybe break in you know with a good camp the next year and, and another good season in the American League but you know all the credit to my agent Rick Vallette of Octagon at the time he uh he said you know what if you go over there and you have a good year you know you can come back and and you know you're not forgotten about over there it's still you know arguably the second best league in the world so you know, you're going to develop, you're going to, you're going to be playing good hockey and, you know, the money is, is life-changing money, right. Compared to what you're making in the minors. So, you know, credit to him for, I guess, not pushing me to do it, but just giving me some, I guess, almost fatherly advice outside of hockey to kind of think big picture of, you know, the long-term and, and eventually, you know, that turned out to be a, a pretty solid decision for me. So I went over there, took, took a one-year deal with a second-year option. And, you know, obviously when you get over there, it's, it's very tough. I mean, in the beginning, I, I was actually late to camp for two or three days. So the team had already left. We had our camp in Switzerland. So I was literally in Minsk by myself and I had a driver that took me around to do all my medicals and physicals at the hospital and you know he didn't speak English no one at the hospital spoke English and you know they brought a translator in every now and then for the important stuff but the first couple of days I was largely on my own just trying to survive basically in a place I'd never been so that part of it made it tough but once I got in to Switzerland with the group it helped a lot we actually had a had a good group of imports there um being that Belarus is outside of of Russia itself, they they don't apply to the import rule like the Russian teams do. So we were allowed to have have more imports. We had a couple guys from Sweden, a couple from Finland, uh, two other Canadians, a couple Americans. So it really made it easier. Had guys to talk to and everything like that. So that part of it, uh, that part of it was easy. And then you know, I I was really fortunate to have. Um, a couple American guys that had been over there before that had a little bit of experience and some, some of the Russian language under their belt too, that helped me a lot. And I, I got close with a guy, his name's Dave Nemirovsky. He was born in Toronto, I believe, but his parents are Russian. So 
he uh, he was actually the coach of um, Atlanta over there. Oh, it would have been two years ago or so. Okay. And then I think Torpedo as well. So I actually saw him at the rink the other day. It's funny. His his son is actually in the same organization that I coach now. So I just ran across him out of nowhere. But he was <laughs> so he was full on, you know, could speak Russian. It was his second language, like nothing. So he really, really helped me a lot just with the day to day stuff and just, you know, took me around, showed me what I needed. And so without guys like him, it would have been much tougher, but I was really in a fortunate situation. So I, I, I heard this on, when you were on, on the other podcast that I, I, I mentioned, and also we talked off air about uh, David Linger, Linger you played with, and we shared kind of uh, the early days of, uh, you know, what's now the KHL and, and some of the crazy shit that goes on over there in Russia. What were some things there that were just kind of crazy that you couldn't believe? Cause I'm sure they're trying to take advantage yeah, it's not Canada. It's not North America. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, in honesty, there's so much stuff. It's like, I, I saw stuff every single day that I was like, I can't believe this is happening right now, but it's tough to recall it all. But I mean, a couple of quick ones, I guess we had a guy um, during the national team breaks. He went to play for the Belarus national team and he got hurt. He got checked from behind and he ended up with a concussion and he kind of had a big goose egg on his forehead. So he was coming back after the national team break and he was starting to ramp up his, his off ice stuff and get ready to come back for practice. But the, uh, the swelling hadn't gone down in his head, so he couldn't physically put his helmet on, <laughs> but the doctors had somehow cleared him to, to practice. So he came out and practiced with us with no helmet on coming fresh off of a concussion so i don't know if that definitely wouldn't fly in north america given all the attention they they give to concussions now but yeah it was crazy i mean it's it's just i couldn't believe it when i saw that stuff like that and then you know obviously there was a lot of um a lot of attention given to the the flying situation over there after you know the unfortunate crash with with locomotive um that was actually the year after I was there and it was kind of eerie because they were flying to play to play in Minsk and and we had actually played them in the playoffs the year before so we did that flight I you know five or six times throughout the season that exact same flight so in those exact same planes the one that crashed um I mean, obviously it ended up being a little more of a pilot error situation at the end, but, you know, still just scary to think about that, you know, that could have happened at any point during the season, you know, previous season when we were going there. So um, I guess you know, most of the time we, we flew just your standard 737 charters, which were great. I mean, they, they treat us great and everything over there, but on occasion we did, uh, we did fly those, those other planes that were a little bit, you know, not much you would see in, in North America for sure. And I remember uh, it was middle of the season, probably January, something like that. And it was, it was real cold, real snowy. We were somewhere in Siberia. I can't remember actually the exact city, but you know, we played a game and then we went straight to the airport and we were flying on to the next city and you know, it was really stormy and it was cold and it was, you know, probably 11, 1130 at night. We get on the plane Everyone piles in, get all the bags loaded. We're sitting there, sitting there, sitting there. Nothing's happening. The pilot comes on, 
you know, same as they do over here, has a little announcement in Russian, obviously. So I didn't understand what he was saying. So I just kind of leaned over to one of the guys beside me and said, hey, what did the pilot say? He said, oh, we just have to de-ice the plane, no big deal, and then we'll be we'll be off, right? So, okay, that's fine. I'm sitting, you know, it's a, it's a charter plane. I've got my own role, so I'm just kind of sitting there, and I just, you know, I'm close to the wing for whatever reason. I'm, you know, a younger guy on the team. I'm, I'm one of probably middle of the plane. So, you know, I flipped up the uh, flipped up the window shade just to see kind of, you know, what was going on out there, expecting – you know, the de-icing truck to be around and, you know, they're spraying down the wings and doing whatever, but no, there's no, uh, no spray, no truck, really just uh, a guy with a ladder up to the wing and he's, he's standing on the wing. And I mean, like I said, it's cold. It is snowy. We're in the middle of Siberia and he's just got what I could best describe as some sort of, I guess, ice chipping thing. <laughs> he's just hammering away on the wing, chipping the ice off physically off and I'm like, okay, this is uh, this is not how we wow. do it. So I just kind of shut the window shade and was like, <laughs> you know, not a religious guy, but maybe said a little prayer and was like, all right, this is, you know, let's hope we make it through this one, I guess. But yeah, wow, yeah, and I'm sure he's standing on the do not step sign, right. Russian on the on the wings, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly, right. It's probably covered by snow. He couldn't see it, so <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that was stuff like that is just you know. It's crazy. I mean, you know, thinking back now, you just, you know, you do whatever you can for, for your career. But I mean, now that I have a family and kids and everything like that, I can't imagine, you know, being in that situation with, you know, other people that depend on me and care about me in that, you know, in that environment. So it's, uh, I mean, something to be young and, and by yourself, but, you know, I can't imagine the guys with families and stuff that do it. So uh, how were the imports treated by the public there, maybe the other Russian players? You know, we ask a lot about that um, to our EIHL um, guys that play over there and the guests we've had on. But, you know, Linger would explain, too, that sometimes, you know, you guys were almost targets. It's like uh, some local people. I forgot which team he played for at the time. But uh, he said that it was very common for them to try and break into your house because at least for them, they got paid in all cash, things like that. Were you guys like celebrities around the area? Were you like a walking target sometimes? How were how were you guys able to be in the public and how did they kind of perceive the American? Yeah, Linga talks about it. you used to have a bodyguard sometimes. Yeah, yeah Linga must have been in the bad area. Well, yeah, <laughs> he was like I said, I mean, way before I was over there. So, you know, Super League was a lot more wild wild west kind of stuff than uh than it is now they've cleaned up a lot of that stuff when i was in minsk it was great i mean it was the fans treated us great um i mean we drew really really well they had a big brand new rink when i was there and you know we were getting 10 plus styles in the game the fans were rabid with the chance everything like that and and you know win or lose we'd come out you know the kind of the players entrance of of the building and there'd be you know hundreds of people waiting every game, you know, chanting, cheering, you know, asking for autographs. And, and they treated us just like, just like the hometown Belarusian guys. So it was, it was great. Um, so, I mean, nothing, nothing wrong with the city at all there. I know, you know, in Russia, I think with the import rule, those spots are tremendously important for, for the team's success. So I know that, like you said, those guys can become targets, not necessarily of the public, but, 
but of the management, right? If, if the team starts skidding, you know, not winning, losing games and, and they start to pile up, you know, the imports are kind of the first guys to be, to be targeted, to get rid of, because they're expected if they come in to fill, you know, one of those four or five spots, so they're going to be, you know, a premier guy. And, and if they're not necessarily delivering to what the team thinks is their capabilities, they don't have any problem shipping guys out right away. So so kind of fill in the timeline then now. Uh, I know later on you end up becoming the captain in 2014 with Florida Everblades. Before we get there, did you? I believe you came back immediately to the States after Russia or after the KHL, excuse me. So what, what kind of led to you coming back to the States and wanting to stay and try and finish your career here? Well, he didn't. He also spent time over in Finland. We'll, right. we'll, we'll so, talk about what. Right. So, so what, what is that whole timeline? Jordan, right? let me ask you one more thing about Russia before we go. Let's talk hockey real quick. <laughs> Um, in your opinion, the second best league in the in the world, how was the level of play over there? I assume it was unbelievable. It was very, very good. Yeah, a lot different style, though, obviously, with the bigger ice, you know, the Olympic size ice and much less physical than North America, especially at that time. You know, a lot of skill. You know, they had they ran more four lines of, you know, guys that could skate, move the puck, skill guys. I mean, almost to the point of of how the NHL is beginning to look now, right? You see your fourth line guys, they're big, they can skate, they can make plays, right? The the gap between the first and fourth line is, is starting to diminish now in the NHL, especially, right? You need every guy to be able to play a role and to be able to, to get out there and make plays. So it was very similar to that. It was, you know, a lot of skill guys. I mean, some guys with crazy, crazy skill that, you know, people in North America have never heard of that will never, never come over here just because of, you know, I guess, I mean, the same reason that a lot of North Americans don't go over, right? It's comfortable to play at home. These guys are making great money. Their families are there. So, you know, but, but really, really good players in their own right. So that part of it was good. Just the, uh, the adjustment of the bigger ice was definitely something off the start, just, you know, being a, a kind of a physical defenseman and, you know, playing the style that I did, I had to to change my game a little bit to to fit the the style they were playing over there. So Andrew just mentioned then um, the next two or three years, a uh, lot of teams, a lot of travel. Uh, what do you remember most about uh, the next few years? Yeah, the year after, um, like I said, I had an option for a second year in, in Minsk there and I decided not to take it um you know I was fortunate enough to come July 1st NHL free agency I had two or three teams reach out to me right away that wanted me to come back and you know I was in contact with my agent and you know it kind of circled back to you know once again the Sutter family just you know being on their radar and and being a, a guy that they you know, really liked, I guess, as far as the way that I played and, you know, being a small town Alberta guy doesn't hurt either when you, uh, when you think about those guys and, you know, the way that they're, you know, they're hardworking farmers, the same as my family was. So, you know, I ended up getting the opportunity to sign back with the Calgary Flames and, and being from outside Calgary and Southern Alberta, it's, you know, it was kind of a dream come true for me, to be honest. It's, it was a big thrill to be able to sign with them. And, you know, I actually had a really, really good opportunity at the start of the season. I, I was the last guy sent down. I got sent down right before game one of the regular season. I really thought up until that point that I was going to, going to at least start the year there. And then, 
you know, I got sent down to Abbotsford and it just didn't, just didn't work out, you know, for a, a variety of reasons down there. I didn't have a great start. You know, I think for my part in it, I was, you know, very upset by the fact that I got sent down. I just really thought I had done enough to, to earn an opportunity. And after, you know, four years of doing everything I possibly could to get there, I, I was so close and I just, you know, didn't, didn't handle it the best way, I guess. And, you know, that got me off to a bit of a slow start in Abbotsford. And then, you know, I didn't, didn't have a great relationship with the coaching staff down there. Um, the organization was going through a bit of a transition, you know, from Calgary to Abbotsford. And, you know, there was a little bit of communication, I guess, breakdowns between the big club and the American League club. And it just, just didn't work out. So I ended up getting moved at the deadline over, over to Chicago. And, you know, it's tough when you're a contracted player of another team, they were Vancouver's farm team at the time. So, you know, that late in the season, when I went over, they were kind of committed to really developing their Canucks prospects and rightfully right. so. Right. So, you know, they had their guys that they wanted to play that were, you know, their NHL contracted guys. So, you know, down the stretch there, I didn't get a, didn't get a ton of opportunity. So, you know, that year was, went from, a really high high in the beginning to to ended up pretty disappointing and then you know that kind of led into to the the following year where you know I played for four teams in four leagues in three countries and you know it, it was a lot and it was it was a tough tough year personally just with all the transitioning and everything I couldn't couldn't seem to find my footing for whatever reason so you know I was on track in Finland at the end, I felt like I was playing pretty well. And then I got suspended close to the end of the season ended up missing the last three games and the first two games of the playoffs. And we ended up losing in the first round. So I think that kind of soured the organization on, you know, myself on that front. And, you know, it just ended up being a, a, a tough season overall for me. So you know, after that, I kind of just wanted to, you know, reset, get some stability. And that's kind of what drew me back to Florida. I'd, I'd been there before and I still, you know, I knew the management there and the ownership. And I just, I just wanted a spot where I could start and really kind of hone my game, I guess, and, and get back to playing the way that, you know, I thought I could. Yeah. So, so bring us through then let's, let's get a uh, an idea of what, the mindset is like for a pro, you know, you're talking about um, how it's all going so great. You felt like you're so close. You felt like you did what you need to do. It's just not going your way, et cetera. And of course you end up having, at least, you know, in our eyes, it looks like you had a nice finishing touch to your career and we'll hit uh, Florida and then Brampton afterwards. But uh, as a pro athlete, what is your mentality and how did you basically what was your mindset to stick with it? I know it had to have been tough and to stick with it and to keep grinding whether or not you think that you were going to make it still, if you were just playing to play, what was kind of your mindset as a pro and how, or what advice would you give to young kids today that are being sent down or up and they don't know if they're um, ever going to make it? What's, what's kind of your mindset for that point? Yeah, I think, I mean, I've loved hockey since I was, I was a kid. Right. And, and as much as it can be challenging at times, I mean, I, I've never had a bad day at the rink, to be honest, you know, I love going to the rink still. And I just, 
you know, I'm, I'm always happy when I'm there and it just has kind of been, been my spot for my whole life. So, you know, there wasn't really an option for myself. I, I didn't think about retiring at that point by any means. I just, you know, like I said, I needed a spot where I was familiar and I could have some stability and I could really just focus and work on my game. Right. I still believe that I was, I was a solid player and, you know, that I can deliver. And, and I, and I did, I had a pretty couple pretty solid seasons in, in Florida there. And I ended up getting, you know, half a year with Syracuse at the time. Um, you know, it was another interesting couple of years, I guess I, I had met my wife at the end of, of the season when I was in Chicago there. And, you know, we were, we were together, we were dating and then, you know, her, her mom got sick and ended up in the hospital. So I was kind of, in between on on Florida there and we a lot of things went into it I guess uh, we were supposed to get married in August of of 2014 and you know her mom was was very very sick and wasn't essentially going to make it to the wedding so we pushed it up to December of 2013 um so it was you know kind of fitting it in the Christmas break there I guess in the hockey season and you know unfortunately she ended up in the hospital in November and, and she ended up passing away in late November. So I left the team in Florida to come back to Toronto here and, you know, spend some time with the family and obviously the funeral and everything like that. And then continued on to the wedding and, you know, just took some time to kind of sort through our, our personal situation. And then I got back with the team in, in early January and, you know, kind of picked up where I left off and that's what led to the deal in Syracuse. But I just, you know, when I say I was craving stability, I didn't, you know, necessarily get it that first year in Florida, which was, which was too bad, but, you know, for everything that, that happened, both organizations treated me tremendously well, you know, through that time and, and they supported whatever I was doing decision wise. And, you know, they, they were really good with everything that was outside of hockey. So, you know, that, that helped me and helped me get centered and, you know, stuff like that can kind of, I guess, put hockey on the back burner and, you know, make you focus on, on things that are a little more important. So, you know, at the end of that season, I, I felt like I owed it to Florida to go back there and, you know, really kind of support them like they had supported me, I guess, the year before. So I ended up going back there for the second year. And then you know, I got hurt early in the season the year I was a captain. I, I, I did my knee pretty bad. So I ended up missing about half the year, but, you know, I came back and had a good, good run at the end there too. So, you know, it was a, a tough couple, three years there, I guess, oh. hockey wise, but, oh. you know, that's just part of growing and growing up. And I think, you know, those, those challenges definitely made me, made me better in the long run, I would say. So hockey question. So when you're the team captain, what does a good captain have to possess to help out the team or responsibilities may have too. Um, you know what? It's interesting because there's a lot of different, different styles of captains. And I don't think it's necessarily, you know, there's a, a cookie cutter mold of, of what you, you know, would be a captain for, for a hockey team. But I think, you know, you have to be a guy that leads by example, whether you're a very vocal leader or not. I think you just have to be a guy that's, you know, displays the right characteristics, obviously work ethic and, you know, character and everything like that, 
you know, day in and day out, right? It's got to be a consistency thing. You've got to be a guy that just shows up no matter what and, you know, does the right things and and says the right things and, you know, acts in a certain way. So I think for me, I mean, growing up in a small farm town, obviously work ethic was a, a huge thing, you know, with my family. So I didn't have a problem there. And I think just, you know, being a guy that really did enjoy my time at the rink every day and being positive and being happy, I think, you know, it's a long season and and it's not always going good for the group, but to be able to try and bring energy and positivity and, you know, lift guys up that way, but also show that, you know, I'm here to make us better by, by working every day and making my teammates better. I think that's a big part of myself being a captain. And I mean, I was a vocal guy as well. I, there's some guys that are more quiet, but I was, you know, a high energy kind of raw, raw guy as well. So, you know, I guess, that was my leadership style. I think you, you see some guys that are a little more quiet about it, but I was, you know, like to get to the forefront and, you know, challenge guys and challenge myself and, and that way, you know, do whatever I can to help us. I mean, I think the biggest thing I had to learn becoming a captain was, you know, it's not, you don't need to change who you are and you don't need to put extra pressure on yourself. If you're the captain of a, of a group because, you know, you've been selected the captain for, for what you've done previously and, you know, the person and player that you, that you are currently. So it's not about, you know, changing and rising to these bigger expectations. It's about just, you know, being the person you've been and the player you've been up to that point. What's the relationship like between a captain and a coach? Uh, just generally, is there like any unwritten rules? Are there boundaries? Um, I'll, to kind of give you a, a context, I remember we had on Shane Corson and he talked about how Larry Robinson, when he was with the Canadians, had to stick up for him with coach uh, Pat Burns because Corson was a rookie. And I guess he slammed the door. He was mad about a shift. And the coach basically right there in the bench says, you're done, get off the bench. And he did. And he thought his career was over. And, you know, Larry Robinson being the captain had to talk to uh, Burns and say, let me talk to the kid, give him some slack. It'll be okay. So what, what is it really like with a, a relationship between captain and coach? Um, it can be different. It, I think it depends on the player and the coach as well. I think, you know, you've seen a pretty dramatic shift in the style of coaching, you know, over even over the course of my career from junior to when I finished playing pro. It, you know, it went from the guys that were really hard and, you know, aggressive and you know bordering on I mean almost abusive to players at times you know not necessarily in my experience but that that was a, a prominent style of coach and you know there was the mind games and everything like that and now it's geared more towards you know communication and opening lines of communication so you wouldn't you wouldn't see many situations like the Shane Corson one because you know the coach and and Corson would have an open dialogue as well. So I think the captain's a little bit less of a go-between now with the players and, and the coaching staff because, you know, the younger player in today's age really expects open communication from the coaches and the new style coaches, you're getting, you know, younger guys, you know, your Jay Woodcrofts and your Jeremy Colletons and guys like that that are, you know, younger style guys that, that, are communicating with all the players and everything's out in the open. And it's more of, um, you know, you give a guy an opportunity, you give him the information and, you know, he's going to, 
he's going to succeed or he's not going to succeed, right? They're not, you know, trying to scare guys into playing better or, you know, force them into doing this, force them into doing that. It's more of an information-based system now. So, you know, that part of it's kind of taking a little pressure off the captains as far as, you know, going to bat for the guys and, and stuff like that. But, you know, we would have communication regularly, especially at that point in my career, I was, you know, an older guy. I'd been doing it for quite a while. So, you know, the coach leans on you to have the pulse of the group, right? Because they're not in the dressing room all the time. So, you know, how are the guys feeling physically? How are we feeling mentally? You know, what are we thinking about, you know, days off, stuff like that. So it's just little things like that where you, you know, kind of, I guess, take the pulse of the group and then, you know, kind of relay that day-to-day to the coaches. So <clears throat> the last five seasons, you found your home in Brampton. When you first got to their tra- transitioning um, from the Central League, um, and they seem to eventually have developed a really good culture in the team and organization. So I'm assuming playing close to home by now, having a family of your home of, of your own, I assume it was a happy time to close out your playing career. What was your time like those last few years? Yeah, it was great. That was the the choice. I mean, I obviously love my time in Florida, and you can't beat the weather down there wearing flip-flops to the rink every day and playing golf yeah. and stuff like that. But, you know, like I touched on earlier with with my family situation with myself and my wife, my wife actually owns a company here in, in Toronto area. So she can't, couldn't travel with me. So, you know, you, you get married and it's time to, you know, start spending time and putting down roots and, you know, hopefully getting a family of our own going. So it's just, it was time to come back closer to home and, and Brampton gave me a really good opportunity to do that once they kind of transitioned out of the central league into the ECHL. So, you know, it was a, it was a great, great transition for me and a good time to be able to, you know, finish off my career close to home. So before we get into our lightning round questions, which my dad will explain one, one last thing is of course, people are going to, are going to want to know what you're up to now. So what are you doing now? Um, we heard you're coaching, doing different things. Let's hear it. Yeah. I, heard he's, I heard he's into makeup. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, I touched on that earlier. I guess my wife's company, yeah, it's a private label cosmetic company. And, you know, I did some, a little bit of stuff there, I guess, with them when I was playing in Brampton in my off time. And then, you know, it, it's family owned company and um, through COVID there, we had to kind of dial back our staff. So got rid of all the staff. And then unfortunately my wife's father, who helped start the business passed away in, in May. So, you know, from that point, I've kind of taken a bigger role there as far as, you know, the accounting, the bookkeeping, and then, you know, my wife and I just doing it all ourselves now. So um, a little more pressure on that front, but, you know, it gives me, gives me a good opportunity to have some flexibility as well. You know, I coach U16 AAA hockey here in the Toronto area as well. So, you know, I'm still on the ice four or five days a week, which is, which is good. It kind of satisfies that urge. And then, you know, transitioning my, I guess, my hockey career into coaching now. Awesome. So in, in this lightning round, fast questions, you can either give us a name. If you've got a story you want to share, the time will be yours, but uh, we're going to kind of get to know you a little bit better here. So I'll start, Andrew. Whole pro career, who's the toughest goalie to score on? Oh, for me, they were all tough, to be honest. I didn't score a ton. So um, I'll say probably um, 
interesting enough because I got my first American League goal on him, but Corey Schneider. So he um, was kind of, you know, in the minors at the time coming up and and a really, really high prospect with with the Devils before ending up with Vancouver there. So I think, you know, for me, he was a guy that was just, you know, really, really good and, and an up and coming prospect and always, always tough to score on. But, you know, I did get my first one in the American League on him. And I mean, lucky enough for myself, I guess. Um, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have a ton of experience scoring many goals. So like I said, everyone was tough to score on for me. Do you have any, or did you have any pregame superstitions or rituals? Um, yeah, a, a few. I mean, more just a routine, right? You kind of get yourself into that comfortable space. And, you know, I like to get a good warm up in. I wasn't a soccer guy or anything like that. I like to kind of be by myself and, and get a good warm up in and get sweating and, and get ready to go. And then, you know, previous to going on the ice, I, I was a big handshake guy. So I had, you know, handshakes with a good amount of my teammates, you know, depending on the team and the, the relationship with the guys, it was, you know, right before you go out, you kind of get those handshakes in. It just puts you in that, in that spot where you're comfortable and, you know, you're ready to go. Which arena had the worst ice conditions from WAHL? Oh, San Antonio or Houston, for sure. When they were in the American league, it just the heat and, and everything. And San Antonio, they play in the same arena or played in the same arena that the Spurs do. And it was just a constant transition between basketball and hockey and, and combine that with the weather. Same as Houston. It was just, it made for soft, sloppy ice and, you know, tough, tough conditions for sure. A lot of bouncing pucks and, and really soft ice. We hear that about Florida too. Was it as bad in Florida was Texas worse? Um, Texas was worse for me. I think for Florida, you know, in the smaller rinks, I guess, Orlando actually does a pretty good job with their ice, surprisingly, you know, considering they play in the same building as the Magic. And, you know, Florida is a multi-purpose facility, but it's not heavily used during the hockey season for other stuff. So, you know, they get a pretty good um, chance to keep their ice in. I think it's just... You know they do what they can with it obviously the the tropical climate hurts and the humidity and everything like that and you know you're not working with necessarily nhl trained ice guys either so it's right. you know it's a bit of an issue but i mean i would say around the echl it's not significantly worse than you know many of the other places there's some places that have really good ice but other than that it's you know everyone else is pretty much the same so we did the worst ice conditions. What about the worst locker rooms? Worst locker rooms. Um, Binghamton in the old rank was really bad, really small. Um, Wheeling, West Virginia, really bad. Does any of them come close to what Arizona Coyotes visiting dressing room looks like now? <laughs> yeah, that, that's crazy. But I mean, at least there was some open space there, right? So we're talking, you know, if it's, if it's tight space is worse than a big open area. I mean, I'm sure those guys have their, uh, have their complaints about it. You know, in the NHL, it's uh, even though lots of those guys came from small ranks and stuff like that, when the longer you're there, the more uh, spoiled you get by that stuff. So it's pretty easy yeah. to forget the, the conditions before that. So, you know, you hear guys complaining about, uh, about stuff like that, but I've actually heard nothing but, 
but good things about, you know, the experience that guys are having in Arizona as a visiting team there. It's just, you know, almost like a little bit of a throwback kind of fun, you know, you get the fans right on top of you and it's a lot of energy and, and everything like that. So I think for those guys going in there, it's, it's good because, you know, Arizona hasn't exactly been a spot where it's been lively for quite some time now. So I think, you know, you get the smaller building and a little rowdier crowd. And I think it makes a little more fun for those guys to go in there now. Two, two questions tied into one. So who is the toughest player you had to fight? And then who was the toughest, strongest player that you had a tough time and you're a big guy, a tough time moving out front of the net. Oh, wow. I mean, when I first came into the American league, there was still pretty flush with, um, heavyweights I guess you would call them you know your John Morastis and Jeremy Yablonskis and, and guys like that I think you know the toughest the toughest guy I actually fought was my one fight I think I had in Russia um it was a guy by the name of Evgeny Artukin so he uh played for he Tampa. played he played oh. in North America yeah, for Tampa for mm-hmm. for a spell and he was a monster like 65 you know 240 250 and just like gold gloves boxer apparently too so um I bit off a little bit more than I could chew there but um I guess it, it was kind of a pride thing to be honest I you know we got tangled up and and he asked me to fight and I didn't really think twice I just wasn't gonna you know, as a North American guy, I didn't want to get shown up by the Russians. So I just, you yeah. know, decided to get in there, but I probably picked the wrong Russian. That's for sure. You could have picked a guy with a little more, uh, a little more skill and a little less of that stuff under his belt. But so about to say, did you find out he was a golden glove boxer after? After, mm-hmm. yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, That's I knew it. who he was kind of, but in the moment you just kind of, you know, you get to it. And then afterwards I was like, Oh, I thought might've picked the wrong guy there, but yeah. And then all the, the Russian guys were like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, you boxer too. so, but yeah, I still, That's I guess funny. not too many scars on my face from that one. So I'm all right. So what was the most embarrassing? Well, hang on. He didn't answer the strongest guy that, oh, that, yeah. that just the strongest guy. You couldn't move him in front of the net. Yeah. Um, guy actually played with probably in practice um steve mcintyre oh another absolute monster so i played with him in rochester at a time when he was really up and coming as far as you know fighting and and he was really starting to establish himself as one of those guys and he was just he was so big and and just you know not a not a soggy big either like he was ripped and and just solid, solid on his skates. I mean, if he dug it in, you couldn't couldn't move him. Wow. So most embarrassing thing to happen to during a game or warm up. Oh, geez, there's trip a trip over the blue line. Yeah, <laughs> I actually in Florida, I went the year I was the captain. I think I had to accept an award for somebody, one of the players that was called up at the time. And so it was kind of near the year end there. So I went over and I, I went to step on the carpet and it wasn't really tacked down. So I, I almost wiped out. I didn't fully wipe out, but I was like halfway down and I almost took out the lady that was giving the award. Obviously she didn't have skates on. So um, that was a little bit embarrassing. Um, I guess pers- embarrassing personally I got, I mentioned earlier in Abbotsford, I didn't really have a, a great relationship with the coach. Um, so 
uh, we were playing a game a game at home and this is close to the end of my my time there um i guess this probably contributed to that factor as well i think so not my proudest moment but uh we we were playing uh i think it was houston actually in in abbotsford and we ended up we got down early i think i got scored on my first three shifts to the game so i wasn't off to a great start um ended up getting benched by the coach you know probably rightfully so at that point so i didn't play an entire all the first period i didn't play the entire second period um start of the third period i didn't i wasn't playing so i was like all right you know my my night's done right so you've been sitting there for i don't know two hours and i haven't touched the ice so i kind of just i got i was you know obviously unhappy with my situation as well so i i just uh you know i took off all my tape i took off my you know undid my elbow pads undid my shoulder pads i undid my skates so i was just sitting there in the middle of the bench like with you know just half dressed essentially right and my stuff was on but it was not it wasn't done up i wasn't you know right and then you know there's probably 10 minutes nine minutes or so left in the third period and the and the D coach taps me. He's like, Hey, you're going, are you ready to go? And I was like, no, I'm not ready to go. I was like, yeah, I was like, you gotta like, I had a better relationship with the assistant coach. Thank God. I was like, look, man, you gotta give me a couple shifts here. Like my skates aren't even tied. So I'm just like scrambling on the bench, trying to get all my stuff. It probably took me two more shifts before I had my stuff back to the way I actually wear it when I play. So, um, yeah, a little embarrassing there. Um, interesting because i'm not i wouldn't generally characterize myself as that kind of guy i mean you know i was obviously pouting and that's not really my general style but you know it came back to bite me so i never did anything like that again but i hit the post on my first shift too i almost scored after not playing for you know 45 minutes so that would have turned the tides on the whole whole experience for me but you know i ended up just finishing off the game and then you know kind of packing it up and heading home sheepishly after you know something like that happens <laughs> finish your funny story yeah. to tell now but embarrassing at the time yeah oh, sure yeah so i know this is pretty broad but just the first thing that comes to mind when i say what's been the most fond hockey memory of your playing career specifically um i think just the relationships you build you know off the ice and i mentioned before seeing seeing my buddy that I played with in Russia, you know, around the rink with his kids now, and, you know, just the guys that I still keep in touch with and, you know, you get to see them playing. And I mean, it's just a thrill to have those lifelong friends and relationships in hockey. And, you know, not too much time goes by. I go to the rink that I don't see somebody I know, you know, through playing and either played with or played against. And, you know, even guys like, like Braden, right? You get opportunities to, you know, go on podcasts and stuff like that through, you know, guys that you've played against and with. And, you know, I played, I guess, good and bad for so many teams that, you know, it seems like everywhere I went, I I knew someone that I that had played with someone or, you know, played with guys that I'd played with, you know, guys I'd played with. So it's just such a small world. And I think, you know, the relationships you build are just you know, really, really special. Well, hopefully this is ballpark. We can't thank you enough for coming on. I think it's something in the pro career, like 740 games, 261 points. 
a whopping nine over 900 penalty minutes. A hell of a career. Yeah. Yeah, Jordan had plenty of the physical stuff going on, too. Yeah. He did. But uh, we can't thank you enough for coming on, man. And uh, we'll say goodbye off here real quick. But officially, we can't thank you enough for your time today. Yeah, thank, thank you. you, guys. Sorry about my dog there. I got to, someone oh, coming to fix my dryer at the door right now. So I got to <laughs> pop out. Good timing. But I thank you, guys. I appreciate the time. And, and it was really good to talk to you. Thank well, you. Thank